You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, let's pray and let's get into our passage, Genesis 14. Genesis 14. Lord, thank you for your goodness and mercy that we know supremely in the sun. And yes, Lord, as we have sung, we need you. And Lord, you have come to us uh, demonstrating that you are for us in the Son of God. And we thank you, Lord, that we pray that even in a passage like Genesis 14, you would teach us more about uh, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that our faith would be strengthened tonight. We pray that we would be challenged. We pray that you would meet us where we are. Uh, Some of us are discouraged. We need encouragement. Some of us perhaps have an unrepentant sin. We need repentance. Lord, all of us need to persevere by grace. We pray for the means of grace tonight through the preaching of the word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a famous arch in Rome called the Arch of Titus. It celebrates the victory of the emperor Titus over the Jews in 70 AD and his victory over Jerusalem where he destroyed the temple. It was built 11 years later in 81 AD. But on this arch, you have these various panels that kind of commemorate his victory. And so for instance, uh, you have on some of the panels on this arch, the golden altar, uh, trumpets, and the seven-stemmed lampstand that was taken, evidently, from the temple. But then you have, on some of these panels, this procession of Jewish slaves who had been, obviously, taken in that battle in 70 AD, and they were being taken to the, the slave market to be sold in Rome. Now, when we consider scenes like that, we should remember that that was us before our priest king, before our redeemer came for us. We we were slaves to a tyrant more evil than Titus could ever envision, more powerful than, than Titus. Uh, We were slaves to sin, yes, but we were under the dominion and the deceitfulness of the evil one, the devil. But by God's grace and mercy alone, through the Redeemer, our priest king, we were delivered. We were delivered by his blood. Now we're going to see that truth and more of those kind of truths foreshadowed in our passage today. Now, as I have tried to communicate with you uh, through the book of Genesis, we have to keep two uh, approaches in tension. First of all, uh, these these texts are preparing us for Messiah. Uh, The Old Testament is about Redeemer sending. And so even uh, Cliff this morning was talking about uh, the, the redemption that you see, the salvation you see, even in Psalm 43. Well, uh, the psalmist, yes, it, he, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit and, and, and God reveals truth to him, but he's also thinking about these various passages in the Torah, like Genesis 14, that teach us something of the redemption 
that would come through the, the end time redeemer, the, the Messiah, the hope of the world. And so we have to keep that truth in tension with the, the other truth that these are examples for us. Uh, they are examples of, of when we see great acts of faith and valor, but also examples of what unbelief produces when we aren't trusting in the promises of God. And so we try to keep those tensions in balance as we make our way through the book of Genesis. And the first thing we're going to see tonight is a portrait. We're going to see two portraits, but a portrait and a foreshadowing of our Redeemer King. If you'll look with me in verse 1 of, of chapter 14, in the days of Amraphel, now if you don't get these pronunciations correct, you missed the whole point of the, the chapter. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Berah, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shamabar, king of Zebuim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim. That is the Salt Sea. So this is around the Dead Sea. If you've ever been to the Dead Sea, you can imagine this is, this is where this battle is, is taking place. And just to give you a picture, across the street, it wasn't a street back then, I'm sure, but in Gedi, where David ran from Saul, um, that's the whole area here. Twelve years they had served Cheddar Laomer, but in the 14th year they rebelled. So as with the rest of Genesis, this is a chapter of first. Uh, you see uh, topics and subjects brought up for the first time in the book of Genesis. In, in chapter 14, you see that as well. So this is the first war in the Bible, Genesis chapter 14. Now we know the last war is going to come in Revelation 19. There's only going to be one king standing. Uh, but this is the first war, and these are not godly kings. These are unrighteous pagan kings. And, and so you see the first war, but you also see the first kings in the Bible here in, in Genesis 14. And so what's going on here, there's a rising up of what, what you could call city-states. And each of these city-states were headed by a king. But there was one who was more powerful than the others. Now, some pronounce him Keter Laomer. I, I pronounce it Cheddar Laomer. I don't think we really know, but the, I have a silly reason for doing that. He's the, he's the, the big cheese, so I call him Cheddar Laomer. Um, that's how I remember kind of things like that. I know that's cheesy. But, <laughs> but you have Cheddar Laomer, and then you have all of these city-states headed by these kings who are in submission to him. They're probably paying protection money uh, to him. But there's five of these kings that are tired of that. Uh, they get fed up with paying this, this money uh, to King Chedorlaomer. And so they rebel. That's what you see at the beginning of this passage. 
And so after 12 years of kowtowing to Chedorlaomer, and let me just tell you what his name means, slave of Lagomir, who was an Elamite god. He was an Elamite god. And of course, he was an Elamite king. And so he is a he is enslaved, you might say, to a, to a pagan, a false god. And, and that really is a, a picture of all pagan kings today. They are all enslaved to false gods. And so this man is a slave to an Elamite god. And so uh, after 12 years of kowtowing to him, these five kings want to stop. They want to rebel against that. And so these five go to battle against King Chedorlaomer and the three kings that stay loyal to him. That's what's going on in the first four verses. Now, with that said, before that battle takes place, there's a couple of preliminary skirmishes, scrimmages, if you will, warm-up battles that take place uh, with Chedorlaomer and his three loyal kings and four other peoples, four other armies. We see that in verses 5 to 7. Then I'm going to explain why Moses uh, kind of changed the subject for a moment. Verse 5, in the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, so there's three other kings with him, correct? They came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava, Kiriathaim, uh, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. And then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. So Moses, in giving us this description, is showing us how powerful Chedorlaomer is, how his allies uh, along with him are powerful. They're, they're undefeated. Now the question is, why, why does Moses digress? Why, why does he tell us about the rebellion of those first five kings in the first four verses? Uh, and then he, he digresses by telling us about all these other conquests of all these other peoples. Well, he has a reason for that. He wants us to know, of course, the original readers more importantly, but also for us, he wants the reader to know these four kings headed by King Chedorlaomer are not pushovers. These are warriors. They know how to win war. They are undefeated. And so after describing the, the last of these warm-up battles in verse 7, uh, we return to verse 8 uh, to see a description of how things turn out with those first five kings who rebelled against King Chedorlaomer. Look with me in verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zebuim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim. 
with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar. Four kings against five. Of course, Chedorlaomer is heading up the, the four, right? Now, the, the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, all right? Like tar pits. I had to look that up. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. That is the tar pits, the bitumen pits. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is King Chedorlaomer and his three loyal kings. And all their provisions, and they went their way. And so they, they plunder, and, and they seize these possessions from the enemy. But they took one item too many. We see this in verse 12. Big mistake. They also took Lot. The son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now, for those of you who weren't here two Sunday nights ago, we saw this digression with, with, with Lot. He wanted Canaan, but he wanted it on his terms. And so when Abram gave him a choice of the land, he, he, he looked and saw how fertile uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was. And, and it appealed to his senses. He didn't recognize how dangerous that was. It didn't even cross his mind. He just saw how, how he would flourish, how he would prosper in a, in a fertile land like that. And then we saw by the time you're done with Genesis 13, uh, he, he's, he's living there close to, to Sodom and Gomorrah. There, there's a digression. It, I like to use this example. He, he, he's not there yet. It's kind of like the offensive tackle, if you know anything about football. He hasn't given up a sack, but he's on his heels. And once you have him on his heels, you know a sack is coming. Lot is on his heels. And, and it is a powerful digression taking place in his life. And now, in verse 12, he's not just living close to Sodom. He's dwelling in Sodom. He's given up the sack. And his possessions, they took uh, Lot and his possessions. A.W. Pink says, Lot laid up treasures for himself on earth and the thieves had broken through. That's where Lot is. And remember, Lot is not an outright pagan. He is a righteous man. We're to see ourselves in Lot. We know from the inspired pen of Peter that Lot was righteous, which means he was a man of faith, a man of faith in the gospel. Of course, his understanding of the gospel was more seed form than ours. It's the same gospel. P, uh, Peter tells us that he is a believer. But it's at this point 
The Redeemer enters the picture. Praise God for that. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew. This is, again, uh, a chapter of first. This is the first time you see the word Hebrew. I mean, it doesn't uh, impact the story. It's just an interesting side point. The first time you see the word Hebrew is right here. But we, we saw in Genesis 10 that the word Hebrew comes from uh, one of the descendants in Abraham's line. His name was Eber, and that's where the word Hebrew comes from. Um, he told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. It's hard to say whether they're believers, but they're certainly their allies. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, what is the significance of 318? I just think it speaks to the historicity of the passage. He had 318 men. Uh, it seems like an arbitrary number, and, and, and because it, it appears to have no kind of significance, it just reminds us that this is real history. This isn't a novel we're reading. Uh, this is true history. And so he takes an arbitrary number of, of, of trained men. There are 318 of them. And remember, this confederation of kings led by King Cheddar Laomer, they're undefeated. Uh, they, they appear to be unbeatable. Um, nevertheless, Abram seems undaunted, which is remarkable to me. I have to believe he was fearful, but there was something that was taking precedence over the fear. And we'll get to that in a moment. Notice in we in verse 15, and he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them. That's all it says. We're not given any details about the battle. He defeated them. That's all that matters. He pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So first of all, we see the wisdom of this man dividing up. There's no history of Abram being a warrior. We don't have any kind of evidence that he had ever fought before. And yet he's got these 318 trained men and he divides them up, and it's likely that the kind of strategy he employs, you find at West Point today. You would, you would hear it in a classroom at West Point. Uh, but you see the wisdom of this, of this warrior, this redeemer, uh, who's fighting this appears to be an insurmountable battle. And then he, he reclaims his kinsman. It's his nephew, but he calls him his kinsman. Lot, and he, he takes him along with all the spoils that these kings had, had stolen in war. Now remember, later in the destruction of Sodom, the end of Genesis 18, Abraham redeemed Lot again. This time it was by a physical 
victory, a, a, a battle that he wins. In Genesis 18, he wins another battle, but it's on his knees. He intercedes for Lot. Remember, he starts with, if you can find 50, Lord, will, will you spare this city? Will you, it sounds like he's a, you know, at an auction. Uh, how about 45 or 40 or 30 or 20? How about 10? But Abraham is interceding for Lot. This is the hope of the world who is interceding for believers who don't deserve his grace and mercy, God's grace and mercy. We see it. We'll see it throughout this Genesis account. But this is grace and courage combined. It's courage because the army he's fighting appears to be unbeatable. They've won every battle. And remember, this was at a time when that's what kings did. These people fought battles. And, and so they were the elite warriors, King Chedorlaomer. And so he only takes 318 men with him. And he, he whips these, these four kings. But it's also grace. Why do I say it's grace? Because all we've seen from Lot is a self-absorbed, selfish person who takes and takes from his uncle but never gives. He has shown no regard for his uncle. All he has done is used his uncle. And so Lot did not deserve Abraham interceding for him, or in this case, uh, going to war for him. Now, on his way back, Abram is met, and there's some real, it, it's, it's awkward language but I think it's intended to be that way. He's met by two kings who represent really two paths. If you look with me in verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, and again, I think the original audience would have just been in awe that this man defeated this, this king who ruled that area that we now know is the Dead Sea area. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him. And so the king of Sodom uh, comes out to meet Abram at the valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. The last time we saw the king of Sodom, he was running for his life, all right, from King Cheddar Laomer. Uh, in the tar pits, if you will, the bitumen pits. Um, and now he, he reappears and he approaches the, the, the man who has recovered the sodomite people and the sodomite possessions that had been taken from him. And about that same time, another king approaches Abram. And that brings us to the second point. We've seen a, a portrait, a foreshadowing of the Redeemer King. And here we see a second portrait of the same king. But it's a second portrait of him. This is a, a portrait and, and foreshadowing of the priest king. The priest king. Look with me in verse 18. And Melchizedek, 
Some pronounce it Melchizedek. I've always pronounced it Melchizedek. King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, El Elyon. That's the name. Uh, Maybe your Bible has a footnote there. El Elyon, the God most high, or, or God of heaven and earth. There's no preparatory comments that are given here. Uh, he just appears. He, he shows up without warning. All right? It's kind of like my conversion. He showed up without warning on August 29th, 1991. I'll never forget that. He just showed up, and I was never the same. And that's probably many of your testimonies as well. He just shows up without warning. And his name Melchizedek, Uh, uh, it has a meaning. It means king of righteousness. Uh, This is the king of righteousness. And he, this man, is king of Shalom, king of Salem, king of peace. So his name means king of righteousness, and he is the king of Shalom, the king of peace, king of Salem. Of course, we know from Psalm 76, verse 2, that Jerusalem is Salem. So he is the king of Jerusalem. In fact, up to the time of David, where he goes in and conquers Jerusalem, Jerusalem was a Canaanite city. And so this is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. I love that. He's a Canaanite king, but he is a priest, a priest of El Elyon, priest of God Most High. This is the first time priest is seen in the Bible. So we've seen the first time a king is seen in the Bible. We've seen the first time a priest is king uh, seen in the Bible. We've seen the first war in the Bible here in Genesis 14, the first time Hebrew is used right here in, in Genesis 14. And again, El Elyon means God Most High, and that's his name. He was the priest of this God Most High. And so we have a contrast here. We have on one end the king of Sodom, and here we have the king of righteousness and peace, and also a priest who is God Most High, the, God, the priest of God Most High. So you have the king of righteousness, and we could say the king of hell, so to speak, coming to Abram right here in this passage. And they approach Abram in two different ways that I think are informative for all of us. All of us will have a king. All of us have something that rules us. Our hearts were constructed to be ruled by a king. And so you have a king. Even if you're an atheist, you have a king. And there's only one true king, all right, the one that created you, the one you were designed for. And all other kings are, are false kings. But these two kings come to Abram, And they represent two different ways. Melchizedek comes with his hands filled. All right? You see it there. um, As we will see in this passage, he brought out 
bread and wine. Again, this is the first time bread and wine are seen in the Bible. This is a chapter of first. Of course, we know that bread and wine, as it takes on, as, as, as revelation unfolds, we're going to learn that bread and wine has much greater significance than they would have originally understood in the book of Genesis. We know that that bread and wine are going to ultimately represent the sustaining grace and mercy and abundance and joy that comes from the Messiah whose body is broken and whose blood is shed for our redemption. But you have this priest king who's the God, the king of righteousness, the king of peace coming with his hands full for Abram. Bread and wine. The king of Sodom, he comes with hands empty. His hands are empty. And he's like the leech in Proverbs who says, give and give. Melchizedek conversely pronounces a blessing, a blessing on Abram. Notice with me in verse 19, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Abram, it wasn't you that brought deliverance. It was God most high who brought it. You were just a human agent. And that reminds us that there's discontinuity between the type and the anti-type. Because the one in who Abram points, he's the one who actually will bring the redemption. And notice Abram's response. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He gave him a tenth of everything. Uh, by the way, as a side, we're not commanded to tithe in the New Testament. People ask me about tithing, and I say, I think that's a good starting point for us. It's training wheels for us. Because you see, even before the giving of the law, this pattern of tithing. So I think it's a good pattern for, for believers. We, we need structure, in other words. Uh, just to say give sacrificially, I mean, if you're really stingy, giving 20 bucks when you make six figures is, is a sacrificial gift, if you're really stingy. So I think we need some kind of uh, structure. I think that's why it's important to read your Bible in a, in a reading plan, because if not, you're just going to read your favorite books and, and passages in a given day. It, we need structure. And so you see, Abram, before the giving of the law, he, he gives a tithe uh, to this one. But, but it's not out of duty. It is out of a response to a gift. This, this king comes with his hands filled with wine and bread and blessing. And, and Abram responds by giving. Grace comes down, gratitude goes up, generosity flows out. That's the order. And notice verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give, give. That's what the world will ultimately do. 
The world does not give. It says give. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Well, notice in verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high. This lets us know that El Elyon is Yahweh because that's exactly the name here. I have lifted my hand to Yahweh. Literally, this is Yahweh. I have raised my hand to Yahweh El Elyon. And so the God El Elyon that that Melchizedek is the, is the priest of is Yahweh. So this is a Canaanite priest king, but he is a priest king of Yahweh. When the king of Sodom makes his demands, we realize that Abram has already made a commitment that he will receive nothing from this king. He will receive nothing. All he needs has come from the hands of Yahweh's priest king. The creator offers us a pleasure that nothing that the creation can offer. There's nothing that he created that can offer us more pleasure and abundance than the one who created it. And Abram recognizes that. It didn't hold any attraction to Abram. This is an example to us. He understood that love for the world is adultery against God. In fact, it's not an, an, uh, an accident that uh, you see in chapter 15, the very next verse, um, after chapter 14, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, God. Abram, I am your shield, your reward. Abram recognizes he doesn't need anything from the king of, of, of Sodom. God was his great reward. He said, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So let's close with some, just a few application thoughts here. It's a passage that it's likely you, you're not as familiar with. And yet there's probably been more written on this than, than a lot of uh, the book of Genesis just because of its obscurity. First of all, as I've already alluded to, Abram points us to the conquering redeemer. Uh, listen to Galatians 1.4. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The language of deliverance. Uh, we see it here with, with, with Abram. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, Colossians 1.13 says, and transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. And so the one in whom Abram points Christ redeems his unworthy brothers, his unworthy kinsmen who deserve judgment. And as the conqueror, he distributes the spoil of war among his friends. Listen to this, Ephesians 4. Each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. It's very similar to what you see here as Abram went in and, and brought back the spoils of war. So this victory is inaugurated by the 
the cross and the resurrection. It will be ultimately consummated when the the true king returns in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in it righteousness, in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is the last war. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, his version of the 318, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Second, Abram is an example to us of uh, promise-fueled faith and courage. Why was he so bold to fight these four kings when he, he apparently did not have a lot of fighting experience? Well, he had a promise that God would make him a great nation. And he recognized he was immortal until God's purposes for him were fulfilled. On top of that, God had promised, I will curse those who curse you. And so Abram probably reasoned, I know these four kings are undefeated. And I know I just have 318 men to fight them. But I have something that they don't have. I have the promises of God. Now, who do you think received this first writing, this book of Genesis? It was the ones who were going into the the land of Canaan who had to fight these warrior kings in Canaan. Deuteronomy 9 tells us these were uh, they were mightier and greater than Israel. They, they were warriors. They were, and Levit- Leviticus 18 tells us they were wicked, wicked uh, kings and nations in Canaan. And, 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 and Moses is saying, you worship the same God. Trust in the promises, just like Abram trusted in the promises. I know that it appears that Abram should not have won on paper. And it's going to appear that you won't win on paper. But what you have that the Canaanites don't have are my promises. And here's my question to you. When was the last time you got scared for Jesus? It's an important question I think we need to ask. Because I think Abram had fear. But promise-fueled faith and courage overcame the fear. When was the last time you got scared for Jesus? When was the last time you did anything? And I'm asking myself this question. I'm not browbeating you. I told Heather about a missed opportunity just the last few days. That it, it kept me up because of the fear of man. So I'm not, I, I haven't arrived here. I'm, I'm preaching this to me. When was the last time you did something that called for valor and courage and great faith produced by the gospel promises? 
We, we're fearful of even sharing the gospel with our co-workers because we're afraid that they're going to raise their eyebrow. Abraham is an example to us. Third, we're running out of time. Melchizedek, his encounter with Abram teaches us so much about God's grace, his abundant grace that comes through the priest king. For lack of time, Psalm 110 refers to Melchizedek, but in the book of Hebrews, just listen to this passage. It's just remarkable. Uh, Hebrews 6, we, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, why is that? What are we referring to here? Well, under the old covenant, the office of priest and the office of king were, were divided. They were separated. And there was a king uh, who, who tried to combine them, and he was struck with leprosy. They were, they were separated, but now this, this priesthood, according to Abra, uh, Melchizedek, it combines the office of priest and king. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of the name, king of righteousness. Even the writer of Hebrews picks that up. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. This is an inspired writer of Hebrews. What's the Old Testament about? Redeemer sending. He is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life. We're not, he's not saying that Melchizedek was eternal because by the time David comes into Jerusalem, Melchizedek wasn't king. Why? Because he was dead. But we don't have his origin. We don't have his death because he's a type. But resembling the son of God. See it? He's resembling. This is not, uh, Melchizedek is not reincarnated as the son of God. He resembles him. He continues his priest forever. So much could be said here. I'm planning to preach on he in Hebrews in a few, in a short after John, but uh, he resembles the Son of God. <laughs> I wasn't going to make any promises there, and I know, you know. But listen to this: as a foreshadowing of, of the coming Christ, he is a priest king. So is Jesus. Melchizedek's name means King of Righteousness, and he is. His vocation is the priest and king of peace, both characteristics of, of Messiah in his reign. Righteousness and peace can only be fulfilled perfectly in the Son of God. Because God's plan to save us, he must remain true to who he is, is righteous. So he can't sweep our sin under the, uh, under the rug, but he wants us to have peace. So how can he righteously save people like us? The priest king comes and fulfills all righteousness. And then the righteous punishment for our sin is poured out on him. And then God raises him, reversing the verdict on us so that we might have peace with God. Melchizedek is not in the line of Aaron, nor is Jesus. Jesus is from the line of Judah. There's no record of in Genesis of his, of his birth or his death, 
And this is symbolic of the eternal priesthood of Jesus. The summary statement, I think, of Hebrews 7 is verse 24. Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. I love that. Because he continues forever. Melchizedek doesn't. Jesus does. Consequently, now this is what's important to us. He is able to save to the uttermost. That means he's not just saving you from the penalty of sin. He is saving you from the power of sin. And one day he's going to save you from the presence of sin. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always loves, here it is, to make intercession for them. And so Jesus is our priest. And as our priest, he offers himself a sacrifice as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, to reconcile us to God, and he continually makes intercession for us. You can only lose your salvation if the son's prayers for you go unanswered. But he's also our king who subdues us to himself by grace, rules over us and defends us and restrains and conquers all of his and our enemies for lots like us. We are more like Lot in this passage than we are Abram. Indeed. And here's what I want to close with. Could it be that we are more like Lot than we realize? The power of the culture is overwhelming. A fish doesn't know it's wet. And so what gets normalized in our culture gets legalized. And then what gets legalized gets moralized. Do you think things where, where things are headed? We are living in the midst of Sodom and Gomorrah. But for people who are born into it, they can't even see it for its shocking perversity. We are more like Lot than we realize. Here's the question. What are you watching What entertains you? What are you enamored with? Are you like Lot where you want Canaan and Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, you see, he doesn't stay stagnant. He ends up living there. And he ends up in the gates of the city by the time you get to Genesis. He doesn't learn, in other words. We're like him. We don't learn. And so are, are you more like Lot? Or Abram, who, who took an oath and said to the king of, of Sodom, I don't want anything from you. That's where I want us to be. But for us to get there, we need to worship. We need to adore. We need to have our faith strengthened in our priest king. Who offers us a blessing. His hands come full. And what the world offers you is empty. It's empty like the king of Sodom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. We pray that it has fed your people. Lord, we need the oil of your grace to strengthen the, and fan the fire of our Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts tonight that comes through the preaching of your word and through the word of God. We pray you would do that tonight. But Lord, we also recognize there may be some here tonight who are living in Canaan or or Sodom. They have no regard for Canaan.
The king of Sodom is their king, not the priest king. And we pray tonight that their allegiances would be transferred by grace and through repentance and faith. And we ask this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, the King of righteousness, the King of peace. Amen. As Adam and the musicians come forward, we want to give you an opportunity to do that tonight. What the priest king, Christ Jesus, offers us is hands full, hands full of blessing, bread and wine representing all that our hearts long for, righteousness and peace. That's what he offers us. But it doesn't come in the doing, as the Roman Catholics believe, ex opera operato. It comes by faith. You must turn from Sodom and Gomorrah, and you must turn to the king of Canaan, the priest king. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.